Hello, Ingrid. Hello. How are you doing? I am doing well. Good. We have a book to talk about today, which is kind of fun. Um, we've done that. Have we ever done a full book before? We've talked about books I've read and you've read, I think, but not like but just one book. Yeah. Yeah. I read a book a while, years ago, a couple years ago, um, that you are just reading now. And it is such a beautiful story and we are learning from it. Um, so we thought it'd be applicable to all the women listening as well. How did you come across The Dressmaker of Care Cana by Gail Sama-Glimon? Yeah, The Dressmaker of Care Cana, um, I originally got from my old music teacher, oh. my beloved voice and choral teacher growing up. She gave it to me on one trip home from college, and I was like, oh, that's nice of you. Opened it up, but it's so beautifully written, it's really engaging, and it's a true story. Hmm. So first... Um, Disclaimer is that we are not going to get all of these names correctly um, in pronunciation. We'll really do our best. This is a story of a woman from Afghanistan. And so it's just like a, a different culture than we have a lot of experience with. So we'll do our best with the names. So they not, might not all be totally accurate. So we, after the past month that has gone on and in our efforts to become aware of Different cultures, different people's backgrounds, different stories. This was particularly interesting to me when you described it to me. And this author is a female author, and I think I'm on a quest this year to read more female authors and hear hmm. voices from people who have been underrepresented in the past. So this yeah. is exciting, and particularly it's a women author and a story about women during a period of a lot of oppression on their side. Yeah. So I'll just read the little synopsis. You're all welcome to read this book. It's, I highly recommend it. But today we'll just sort of glean from it. So I'll read the little synopsis from Wikipedia and um, we'll jump in and talk about things. So the dressmaker of Care Kana. The story begins in 1996 on the day that Camilla graduates with her teaching certificate and the day the Taliban first arrives in Kabul, capital of Afghanistan, and home to the Siddiqui family. Inspired by the Sharia law of Islam, it would become the doctrine of the Taliban to completely isolate women from society. Women were not permitted to work, attend school, or even leave the house without a male relative. Camilla's father and brothers do not escape persecution either and are soon forced to flee the city. Unable to teach and desperate to support her family, Camilla masters the art of dressmaking and passes on the skills to her younger sisters. In order to find work for the budding business, Camilla frequently makes a dangerous trek to the market and meets with the owners of local dress shops. Soon, the business is growing, and Camilla sees an opportunity to help other women in her community. With the help of her sisters, she opens a tailoring school in their home to teach women how to sew and to give them work once they completed their training. At a time of almost insurmountable poverty, she is able to employ nearly 100 of her friends and neighbors, all while escaping the scrutiny of the Taliban. So that is the really compelling story of Camilla Siddiqui and her family. This is, of course, a, a really important and um, a known time in history, but to, to read 
about someone's really personal experience is helpful. I think that's the, the most compelling way to learn about any of history, and this is really recent history, as it were. Her experience in the book starts in 1996, and once the Taliban's reign was lifted from Afghanistan, Camilla went on to do incredible things for the country in general. She has set up a few different business enterprises to support like entrepreneurial skills in both women and men, especially in rural communities. How do you take one skill that you have in a sort of impoverished area and make it a, a real business? So she's really doing incredible things even now today. And it's kind of an honor to be able to read her story. Definitely. It's really amazing to be able to read her story. And like you said, her story takes place during what in my lifetime has been like the most monumental, memorable uh, time of life because the story takes place over the years of what we call in the United States, 9-11. And at one point in the story, she talks about how she was, she and her sisters were going about making their dresses and they heard on their little uh, generated powered radio that planes had crashed into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon and how they anticipated life changing and and how life became even closer and more dangerous and smaller in the days after that, where it had been beforehand, but it, it became more there. The author also mentioned in the book what happened when the movie Titanic came out and how the yes. Taliban actually uh, banned Titanic um, Jack Dawson haircuts <laughs> because boys wanted Jack Dawson haircuts, the flop, moppy haircut that he had, which is interesting to me because I remember that movie from the United States and, and the, right. how it swept the United States. And we heard about how the Taliban cracked down on U.S. movies overseas. But hearing it from her perspective was interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I hadn't thought about it from your perspective quite so much because, of course, this whole story has happened in my lifetime too, but I was born the year that the story starts in 1996. Yeah. So there is actually still quite a bit of, oh, this is history feeling in my head, just because I was, I have shadow memories of 9-11, but, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't, like, into the political scene or, like, world knowledge. I was playing in my playroom. And so, yeah, that's fascinating. You have personal experience from an American side to try to connect some dots and widen your memory or understanding of that situation. Yeah, she's about 10 years or so younger than me, maybe only actually eight years younger than me. So thinking about what her life was more similar to mine when she, she was just mm. getting started then. From a parenting perspective and all the U.S. parenting books that I read that talk about how to raise an adult and resilience and everything, my mind was just blown with this. And also from the trauma perspective, mm. uh, how we face trauma in our lives and our body holds on to trauma. But uh, corporate trauma that people experience mm. is absorbed and uh, moved through and dealt with more easily than individual trauma. Yeah, because you have someone to share the experience with. Right. You share it together. That's the most huge part. And so what I think of in this book in particular is that her family was going through and her whole community was going through corporate yeah. trauma, but also the resilience of the kids. When I read that 
her dad left, that was one thing, but her mom was still there. And then reading that her mom left, I kind of was like, did I read that right? Did I hear that right? Mm. Did she really leave? That seems crazy to me. But there was reason for her to leave as well. And there, there, I mean, there was a, is a family of 11 kids. So that is like unthinkable yeah. in the United States. But, <laughs> but um, the family dispersed all over the place. And then uh, Camilla had an older sister who already had a family and children of her own, right. who was the excellent seamstress. And the resilience and imagination, thinking of what could we do? What do I have in my fingertips that I can make something of? was what was so amazing to me. Such imagination. It's incredible to, to listen or, or read a story like this because I'm sure it's impossible to imagine unless you're there. And really awful oppression usually is. It's like kind of unique. So I can't imagine what I would have done in a situation like that. But um, yeah, for her to have such courage and hope to say, I love teaching and I have that skill. And I know that my sister has the skill of sewing. And she combined those two things. I mean, she starts this whole project by needing to learn how to sew herself. Mm-hmm. So there's some sense of not having all of the tools at first to begin where she wants to begin, but having the even more baseline tools to get there. Mm-hmm. It, that was amazing to think about how she was able to um, pull, pool her resources and risk. She had a younger brother who was between 11 and 14. I can't remember what his age was. But the reason he didn't have to leave is he was young enough to still go to school. And he mm-hmm. was able to be her escort. Women could only go out in um, the air area during the daytime with a young escort or a male escort, but it could be a younger brother. But then there were times when he was needed to be a uh, tailor himself and he learned how to sew and he learned how to embroider and do the beadwork because they were had so much work that he had to learn everything as well. One thing that I found really powerful about her story is just the fact that When she began to bring these women together, there was such healing and connection between them, even if they didn't have all of the same beliefs or personalities or any original relationship. Mm -hmm. And you see that through many stories of this sort of desperation and coming together in need. But it's just always a good reminder to say, you know, when you have a common goal Mm -hmm. and and when that goal is is empowering, Mm -hmm. when it's so positive, they were able to bridge so many other gaps and uh, create unity within themselves. I also appreciated the length and the effort they went to to obey the rules of the Taliban. They did not try to flout the rules and they didn't want to do anything that would be illegal or uh, anything that would draw attention to themselves. So they were providing this work for people and were doing this work, but they were having people on schedule so they didn't draw too much attention. So people came to their house at different times and all of that. And I appreciated that because they worked within the confines that they had. And I also appreciated the positivity and the lack of complaint 
that they had. It was like they didn't have time to complain because they had so much work and they didn't have time to feel fearful because they were thinking of providing for their family. That's interesting. I do not feel the same way. Oh, really? I understand the concept of not complaining and I understand the concept of following the rules, but I have a really hard time with that being okay when the rules are so oppressive. I, like, of course, they, they are going to follow the rules because they're living in such deep fear. Like, the Taliban would kill it at any moment. Kill. Like, not, yeah. this is not a joke. Right. So, of course, they're going to do that. But for the groups that, that did try to band together and, and do something that was against the laws or felt more violent, I, I also want to say, like, good on them. You know, like, I just feel uncomfortable praising one in a way that feels like you can't also then uplift the other. I think whatever you're going to do in the face of such obviously wrong oppression, you you got to do. Hmm. And I think that also something like you don't hear them complaining, etc., is is a literary <laughs> advantage. She's she's telling a really good story that's going to mm. keep you engaged, and it's not very engaging if someone's complaining all the time, but... I mean, to if you just think about all of the conversations that you're going to have in a sewing circle, it's going to be deeper and more raw every time you talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And it's going to feel different in the same way, not in the same way, in a way worse way, but even in the very little way where it's become weird in this pandemic, mm -hmm. in, in COVID-19, for us to just talk about death tolls, mm. which is like weird that that's just now a thing that we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine the, the deep violence in Afghanistan at that time. Like, their conversations are going to be way more raw and full of awful things that they've sort of become numb to because they happen so often. Mm -hmm. But I, I just can't imagine that there isn't complaining and deep fear in that. I, I think that's most of their lives, and this was their lifeline. Mm -hmm. You're right. I mean, this is told through a lens. I appreciate the way they choose to make this the lens. And I do think that she's, I mean, uh, Camilla is the heroine of the story. So she's the most resilient, the most yeah. uh, fighter of the women. The other women might have been more complaining and quieter, but they weren't going out and risking their lives and making all the decisions. Kind of like Camilla didn't have time for that because she was on to the next thought and all of that. Everything she does is so noble. It is so for the greater good and for more than herself. I just feel like praising her nobility in that her choice to obey the rules of the Taliban so quickly becomes, you should always follow the rules. And that is, I just don't believe that. <laughs> I, I am such a rule follower personally, but I also live in the United States of America as a privileged white woman. So mm -hmm. it's way easier for me. And I, I don't want to put judgment either way, really, on, on people living in far more oppression because I don't know what that's like. And I don't want to call upon someone to follow rules that are fully unjust just because they're the rules. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, they knew they couldn't change it. We try to take on what we think that's feasible for us to take on. So, Which is exactly what Camilla did. She said, what is feasible for me to take on in this moment? And what fe was feasible grew, actually, yeah. the more that she did it. At first, it was just feasible for her to walk to her own sister's house and learn how to sew herself. Mm -hmm. And it became, you know, 100 people. And it became relationships with the community. And once the Taliban reign lifted, it was it became 
becoming a global voice Mm -hmm. where she's spoken at the UN and Mm -hmm. really worked in other areas for much more widespread change and empowerment. So you're right. um, Starting with the scope of what you can do is is great. And knowing that even that small thing can be hopeful because that scope can grow. Yeah. It's a good lesson for me to look out for other people, to look for what can I do. And what's within my reach, even if I don't know how to do it, I could learn how to do it. It's hard for us to understand, I think, in the United States because we are so individualistic and we want to always do our own thing. I think we have a little measure of understanding it a little bit more through the pandemic because we have come together and we have a common enemy, (laughs) which is the coronavirus. And we are trying to fight against that. We've gotten fatigue from it. It's been three months. It's been over three months. And people, we don't hear stories about people standing on their porches, banging pots and pans for the essential workers in the medical field anymore. We have people that are clamoring to get out on their own and they don't want to stay in their house anymore. Well, that's why I think stories like this give such great perspective. Yeah. Because this is nothing compared to the Taliban. No, nothing. (laughs) And we're three months in and we can talk about something like fatigue. Like, just, I just can't imagine, I mean, if we were really in some kind of situation like Camilla, mm-hmm. fatigue would feel very different mm-hmm. and might have come way sooner, but then it would last so much longer, so then what does it turn into? And there seems to be, through the book, this sort of, like, quiet, deep resolve mm-hmm. that isn't really, f- like, full of hope, but is, is full of survival and sort of stubbornness. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you just, you can't beat me kind of thing that is sort of amazing well it takes me back to there's always some quintessential songs that we have throughout our life that always pop Hmm. into our head so the frozen two song that anna sings do the next right thing comes into my head so good (laughs) because that's what camilla and her sisters and her family and the people that lived in karakana were faced with what is the next right thing to do today I need to feed my family. I need to produce some income so that I can feed my family. It's really streamlined down survival. Like you said, survival. Yeah. They're looking for that. They're not sitting around waiting. They're looking for things they do. And as new opportunities present themselves, this particular, the heroine of the story, seizes them as she can. And she does risk her life within reason. She tries to be very careful but we see her courage grow throughout the story as well. Just the fact that they were able to stay is is courage in itself. Because I was thinking about that. It's been a couple years actually since I've read the details of the book. But she does talk about how family after family just fleed. Fled, yeah. And they did everything. Fled? You're right. Fleed is not a word. <laughs> Their families did everything they could to to flee, whether it was a couple people at a time or smuggling the women out or whatever it was. And I just, I don't imagine that there would have been anyone in that time that could have just sat around and wait because there's the different level of survival there. Mm -hmm. If they just like sit around, they're not going to eat. So I don't think anyone was saying like, ah, we'll just try to wait this out. Mm -hmm. They either fled or they did something drastic. Mm -hmm. And what Camilla does is so drastic in such a measured way that it doesn't necessarily look like it from hindsight. Mm-hmm. But literally the fact that she stayed, that their family decided to stay in the capital is a huge mark of we're doing something. Yeah, they knew they had something to do there. I've always wondered 
about people that have stayed in places. When I've traveled to different places in the world, I've thought, well, why did families stay here? Why did people stay in Poland? Why did people stay in Russia when they were under oppression? Why did people stay in Germany of different, mm-hmm. you know, why, why did the Jewish people choose to stay there? How did they calculate and weigh <laughs> in the balance? It, it does seem like they really thought about it and they, they really thought that the since the five sisters were there, they would be much safer. They weighed the risks of moving them and all the terrible things that could happen if they tried to move, which sounded awful. And it did sound like they were safer there and they had something to do. Well, what I glean from stories, as you mentioned, of of different rounds of oppression around the world is that what, what seems to be similar among the stories of people as they, you know, decide if they should stay or just as they process their new oppression mm-hmm. is some some joining of fear and self-worth. Mm-hmm. This thing of if I just flee, I give you the power and I don't I don't care what you say. I'm a human being and it doesn't matter that you're systematically telling the whole country person by person that I am not to be treated like a human. Mm. I can, I'm going to stand so stubbornly in my humanity. Mm. And that courage and that just deep belief and, and pride in who you are and your culture and your home. I just, I, you know, there were a lot of stories through World War II of people saying, no, this is my home. You can't take it away from me. Mm-hmm which is a lot to take in. There's so many layers of courage marked with like, you're putting yourself in more danger and, you know, things again that we will never understand really Mm. as people in a privileged free world. Yeah. But I do see that as as a mark through lots of stories of oppression. That's something I think really beautiful and powerful about the human spirit. Mm. Stories like this are so inspiring with what we can do. I think it's useful for us to read them and be reminded. And I'm wondering who's out there right now writing stories of life under quarantine that we will read in a few years as they get published. Maybe it won't take so long for them to get published, but there'll be good storytellers out now that capture little um, excerpts of of hope and uh, what they do in the midst of their setting. It makes me want to research or, or just be even more plugged into the the global community now to and and to think when when you hear a story of the government whatever to think about which people are the outcasts because of the way that that government is working mm-hmm. okay how do we uplift those people you know like there's got to have been some organization underground trying to help women through the Taliban reign. I don't know. Well, they talk about that. That's where she went to work later on. She went to work for um, a corporation and her sister, her older sister was concerned for it. I, I can't, I think it was maybe Mercy Corporation that, that came in and tried to give them aid, but it was risky for them to accept the aid as well. And it was risky for, for right. them to uh, seek it and to collaborate with it. They had, she talked about the big risks of trying to collaborate with outside organizations. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, I guess that what it makes me want to know is what can I do? In, in a story like this, if, if I was my age in 1996 and, or 97, as this is happening, like what would I have done? And, and the 
truth is there's just as much oppression in different ways today. Mm-hmm. And what can I do? Yeah. yeah. I did. I just finished reading also the um, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Uloa. And she gives a list of things that I actually wrote on our board in the kitchen of action steps to take. Hmm. organizations to pay attention to voting. She said, you know, vote local, pay attention to what's going on in your local, because you got to start in your local community, which is what Camilla did as well, start in her local community before she expanded larger and to take action there, take action with the school board, take action with the police, the regulations that are happening with that. So it's kind of a measure of like, okay, where, what hours am I going to, what hours of my week will I allocate to these causes? Yeah, but to make that a priority. Yeah, we're in a place of reevaluating that. Definitely, I am here. I don't want to just learn about it. I want to take action. So I'm looking for those specific organizations. And it, we're also at an interesting time, which is she, Camilla, the woman in Care Canal, was like that as well, where she couldn't actually go out and hear about a lot going on locally, where we can't either. It's not like I can easily go up to places, even websites aren't providing quite as much information all the time as current information of what's going on of meetings happening but hmm. still trying to find the place to take action yeah well thanks for reading this book mom it was I'm great glad that you enjoyed it yeah it's so powerful definitely i'm headed on to read gail samak lemon's next book ashley's war Ah, so a, cool. a female author who writes about females in another situation. This happens in uh, Kandahar in 2011. So that's my next book I'm going to be reading. Awesome. <laughs> well, happy reading to you. Happy reading to you. Love you. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Bye.